In this episode of the Renovation Radio podcast, we speak to Brian Huddleston from Fidelity Bank. Brian has carved out an incredible niche in the housing finance industry by advising mortgage brokers on a safe and sound transition from mortgage broker over to mortgage banker. Brian offers is a warehouse lender for Fidelity Bank, and we'll learn all the tips and tricks for mortgage brokers who have an interest in maybe one day becoming a mortgage banker. Renovation Radio, because we're all a work in progress. Okay, Brian Huddleston, welcome to Renovation Radio. Thanks, Mark. Good to be here. Awesome. How uh, how are things going for you today? Really good. Really good. Hey, we're uh, you know coming off of a, of a really great year uh, for our part of the bank. So yeah, couldn't be better. Good deal. Well, I appreciate you taking some time out to talk to us today at Renovation Radio. We got a lot of things to cover, and I know our listeners are going to love to hear the information that you've got on the expertise that you've built in your career on take, you know, helping mortgage brokers and advising them on whether they, they should stay a mortgage broker or becoming a, uh, a lender and a, and a banker. So before we do that, um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about you, you know, a little bit about your background, how you got into the housing finance industry, and tell us a little bit more about uh, Fidelity Bank. Yeah, no, hey, thanks for that. And uh, yeah, so my, my background, really, I think the bulk of my career was spent in investment management, uh, buying uh, every kind of asset-backed security uh, that you could imagine uh, as you know, did as credit analyst, trader, portfolio manager, um, and then eventually that 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 part of my career kind of ended because the company I was working for was relocating, and I thought, hey, maybe this is a good opportunity and a sign for me to to move on and and try something different. So, because of my background uh, in investing in securitizations, uh, I think Fidelity Bank was attracted to that background. So. Um, you know, that, that's how I made my move to uh, Fidelity Bank. Now, the bank itself, uh, you know, I, I've, I've been here for about uh, all, close to seven years now, but the bank itself has actually been uh, in the warehouse space uh, since uh, 1986 when they took on their first warehouse client. So they have a very long uh, uh, track record in history in warehouse lending uh, going again back to 86 and then even through the 2008 financial crisis and, and their uh, really, uh, their, their footprint at, at back then that the bank is actually headquartered in uh, uh, Edina, uh, Minnesota, even though I, I'm sitting in Houston, Texas, and that's where the Houston office, you know, we run the broker to bank or emerging correspondent. Uh, the uh, the bank is is in is in Minneapolis and their footprint back then was the upper Midwest. And they, I think, uh, you know, with the purchase of what used to be called Warehouse Lending Group has now just been fully integrated and called uh, uh, Fidelity Bank. Uh, we've um, we, we've increased the footprint to to uh, a national footprint, but but definitely a bank that you can go from broker to banker, and then all the way up to a large correspondent. And we have the expertise to to bank you at whatever part of your growth cycle you're in. That's awesome. So what what year did you move from the asset securitization side of of the finance industry over to warehouse mortgage warehouse lending? What year was that? Yeah, that was uh, twenty. Of uh, fifteen, um, gotcha. I'm a real gotcha. short, short stop uh, with Bank of America in middle market lending for a brief time. It was about eighteen months, sort of a, a boot camp on banking, if you will, uh, before I moved to Fidelity Bank. Very good, very good. Well, before we 
dive in deeply here into the into into your expertise. I think it might be important to lay out a few definitions and just make sure everybody understands you know what we mean when we mean some of these terms. So the first thing I wanted to sort of talk about was you know wholesale broker, uh, which is you know which is where uh, the 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 investor is the lender essentially versus a mortgage banker slash lender. So in in your mind, what's the difference between a a broker and a lender or a broker and a mortgage banker, you know, wholesale versus correspondent? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, really the the broker, uh, someone who has a wholesale relationship with a lender uh, is someone who's bringing a borrower uh, together with a lender and then taking a commission uh, when the loan closes versus a mortgage banker uh, who's, who's moved out of the seat of bringing two parties together and is actually lending off of their balance sheet, their own balance sheet. So they, they're actually lending, uh, taking the uh, risk of being the lender onto their own. Um, and they're, they're the ones who are at the closing table, uh, closing the loan in their name versus if you're a broker, you're closing uh, the name in, you're closing in the name of the lender. So uh, if they have a wholesale relationship with Loan Depot, that note at the closing table will say uh, Loan Depot on it versus uh, being a you know, a uh, uh, mortgage banker or lender means um, that's got your company's name on it, the company you own. So that that's that's in my mind the the, the difference. Very good. So, what, so one term that gets thrown out a lot of times, and and I'm curious to see what you think what you think about this. So the term table funding. So is how does table funding compare to broker versus mortgage banker? It's it's very similar. Um, you know, the big difference. Uh, I, I think uh, in the broker world, when you say t- table funded, um, you know, the lender really is, is their, uh, you know, funding at the table with their, their capital, their balance sheet versus, uh, you know, um, the, the broker really doesn't, you know, they're really out of the transaction at that point. Uh, but, you know, table funding as a lender, um, you're using your balance sheet to send your cash to the table. The warehouse bank is, is typically sending cash to the table to close that loan, which is really how a lot of, um, and I'm sure Loan Depot is the same way, wanting to uh, uh, have the warehouse bank funding and then buying it off of the banker's warehouse line. Sure, sure. No, but that's good. That's good. And then inside the, the world of mortgage banker slash lender, there, there's different levels. You know, I've, and, and I'm, I'm going to lay them out here. I, and, I, and there's different terms people use. But in my mind, you've got a, you've got what's a, a mini correspondent. And I've got in my mind a definition of that, which I'll go I'll go over in a second. Then you've got a non what I call a non delegated correspondent, and then a delegated correspondent. And so, to me, uh, you know, a mini correspondent is a lot is oftentimes what we're talking about here. You know, a broker to banker, so a, a, a person who or a company now who is now a mortgage broker, and they're deciding to learn more and 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 and, and try to become a lender. They might have their current uh, wholesale partners partner with them in a in a mini correspondent fashion, which would be the uh, the closing disclosure and the closing documents be prepared by the investor, and uh, versus what what we would call a non delegated correspondent, where the investor is basically just underwriting the loan from a from a credit standpoint. So the lender um, or your or the warehouse client in your in your case 
would be preparing the closing disclosure and the closing package or having that done by a third party. And then they would utilize the investor's resources to underwrite and approve, you know, final approve the loan and then just buy it off the line versus a, a fully delegated correspondent, which is, you know, maybe a little more sophisticated mortgage banker. They've got underwriting staff, um, W-2 employees, or maybe they use contract underwriting with one of the mortgage insurance companies or some combination of that. Um, they may be transacting it. They may be hedging at this point, um, transacting in the secondary mortgage market in a little more sophisticated fashion with uh, mandatories and uh, and assignment of trades and uh, maybe even actually delivering directly to the agencies. So is now I know those terms, many correspondent, non-delegated correspondent, correspondent get thrown around. It's is that how kind of you see it, or do you have do you see it a different way? Yeah, you you laid it out pretty well. I think um, you know mini correspondent, non delegated correspondent. Those those actually could be synonymous, um, j- just because uh, you know um, you you will hear uh, those two terms. The other term you'll hear also with mini correspondent, non delegate or non delegated is going to be um, emerging banker. You, know, you hear emerging banker, and that really that's right. That's right, emerging yeah. banker. I've heard that too. Yeah, yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. And and you'll you'll hear people say that you know uh, someone's an emerging banker when they're moving from broker to banker. We say they're 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 emerging. You know, they're not, you know kind of like you know uh, that that was a term that was used back in the late nineties, early two thousands about emerging countries, the BRIC countries. You know, they're 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 coming into being first world from third world, or or, or you know, if you, if you look at it that way. Ooh, I like that. I like that analogy. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. Just, just the same way. Um, you know, being being a broker. Uh, you know, you're you're going. You know, going. You're emerging into being. Uh, you know, uh, a banker, mini correspondent, non delegated correspondent. And then, you know, you you mentioned delegated. I mean, definitely the same thing. You know, those are higher net worth uh, bankers who uh, have decided. Hey, there's. You know, there's there's a, a, a yield pickup to moving to delegated that I think I want to take advantage of. Uh, I have a high enough volume to, to make that make sense. Um, but, you know, we've worked with some clients who have the net worth and the ability to move to delegated who told us, Hey, we just don't want to do it. We just don't want the risk. Um, you know, that we don't, our volume still isn't high enough to make us comfortable with, you know, bringing on and, and paying that, that uh, underwriter salary. So I'm just not ready to do that. So, um, you know, all, all the guys that, you know, that, that kind of fit that, Broker to banker, many you know, many correspondent, uh, emerging banker, you know, the, they they could be anywhere along the spectrum, and, and you just never know where someone's going to land. Uh, it really depends on their risk appetite and how much they want to take on, um, and what their budget is. And yeah, then actually using your analogy from from the emerging country, you know, going from the from the third world to the first world sort of thing. If they if they try to if if, if the if the emerging banker tries to do it too quickly or doesn't work with a trusted advisor or consultant in the process. A lot of times, and you and I both probably have seen it, uh, they, they get, they go back to the third world pretty quickly uh, yeah, because, because, right. because yeah. they, because they don't do it right. That's right. That's right. So yeah, very important to get with the right people um, and, and, and understand, you know, that's the thing is, is uh, I think in a lot of these cases, um, if you don't understand the risk going into it and you, you know, maybe you've been led to believe that there's no risk or that it's very low risk. 
Uh, and then you end up getting bitten by something that that happened there where you learned, hey, if, if I had appreciated the risk more, I, I maybe I wouldn't have done it that way, or maybe I would have gone in with a little more information and understood a little better. Um, you know, those are the people, like you said, they usually get bitten and, and start moving backwards. And, and you know, it's good to, to flesh all those those risks out early and, and try to get those people to, um, you know, to, to get some, you know, help, help get, get their hands on some knowledge to really educate themselves before they, before they make the move. Yeah. It's a, it's a cliche, but kind of go slow to go fast. Right. Right. That's right. So another term terms that get thrown around kind of synonymously sometimes, but they're different <laughs> is lender versus investor. So what do you, what do you, what do you think about those two terms? Yeah, you know, um, I think uh, brokers, especially someone who's been a broker for a really long time, um, they will they will be uh, using a warehouse line as a as a correspondent lender. You know, they will be making loans off their own balance sheet, and then they'll refer, like for instance, they'll refer to Loan Depot as their their lender. And um, you know, I'll, I'll I usually don't. You know, I, if I can, I, I won't correct anybody. We'll usually uh, we'll come back and use the word investor. And, and if anyone ever says anything to me, I, I usually just say, "Well, that they're sitting in the investor seat now. You're the lender," uh, because that really <laughs> is what happens. Uh, you know, if you move from broker to banker, um, the you know Loan Depot is your investor now. They're they're going to be buying loans off your warehouse line, uh, and then the warehouse bank will be settling. And and uh, you know that's when you're that's when you get paid. Uh, when the loan sells, so um, you know, no longer are you uh, collecting a commission check uh, after the loan closes. You're 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 waiting for the loan to sell, and you're responsible for getting that loan off of your warehouse line and sold to Loan Depot. Sure, sure. And then one more one more term uh, in terms of the, the the thing that you provide at Fidelity Bank for your clients is what's called a warehouse line of credit, or you know, maybe slang term warehouse line or warehouse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what, so what, what's, what's your, what's your best def- definition of a warehouse line of credit? Yeah, really. It's just a line of credit that you are using uh, to originate mortgage loans. Uh, and, you know, uh, there, there's, you know, uh, r- really, uh, I mean, it's, it's the same, uh, you know, everywhere, uh, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're getting a line of credit, uh, not really like a credit card, but similar to a credit card in that, you know, you, you're told what your limit is. Uh, you know, you you will spend up to your limit, basically. And, um, you know, the way to uh, uh, keep that limit open for yourself is to be uh, working with uh, the investors to clear the conditions on the back end to get the loan sold. Uh, and the faster you can get the loan sold, the, the, the quicker you're going to get paid. So, um you know, yeah, where a warehouse line is really just that. It's a line of credit that you're using as, as your working capital. That's how you are, uh, you know, the way we look at uh, mortgage companies at Fidelity Bank is that they're a manufacturing company, but they're manufacturing credit products, which are mortgages. And they're maintaining an inventory of mortgages on their balance sheet that is created by uh, this, this warehouse line. So it, it's creating uh, the asset. Uh, you know, that's going to be the, you know, what sits on and the mortgage itself is going to sit on the asset side of the balance sheet. Uh, and then the line of credit is obviously the liability side of the balance sheet. Uh, and the difference between those two, uh, the value of the asset, and the value of the liability is basically the, um, you know, what you're, what you eventually will make on the, uh, the sale of those, those the, that inventory of loans that's sitting on your balance sheet. Sure. So it's, so it's interesting. So the lender, when the lender decides to make a loan, whether they use a warehouse loan or credit or some other means, um, 
you know, their collateral is the real estate. So the so the consumer, the borrower, the buyer, uh, depending on the transaction type, you know, signs a promissory note at the closing table that that makes them indebted to the lender. And then they also sign a mortgage deed of trust, depending on the state requirements or state law that ties the, their indebtedness or their debt, their, prom- their promise to repay the debt to the real estate um, yeah. minus their minus their down payment um, or whatever. And then your warehouse line of credit, you know, and it may not be a permanent thing, but, you know, between, you know, the, but while the loan is you know, in the in the lender, I call it the, I'll call it the lender stage, not in the final resting place. Mm-hmm. Your your collateral is that promissory note. Is is is, is that correct? That is correct. Yep, we will. Um, yeah, we we take a security interest, as we call it, uh, which is you know perfecting your security interest is uh, uh, basically saying, hey, you're you're you know we are. Uh, uh, this is our collateral. That mortgage note for for every advance we. To the closing table that we make, uh, our collateral, how, how we would get repaid if, you know, let's say the worst should come to pass, uh, you know, the company goes bankrupt in the middle of, um, you know, ha- having, uh, call it, uh, you know, four or five million dollars in mortgages sitting on their warehouse line. Well, um, you know, we would have to uh, work with, you know, uh, maybe a bankruptcy trustee or uh, we, we would we would work with whomever we need to to get those loans sold to get us repaid. Uh, and then, uh, you know, whatever claims the company also has to their own income, uh, they might have other creditors in that are sitting there, uh, you know, waiting for them to get their income uh, to get repaid for whatever other debts they may have. So, uh, so yeah, definitely, those notes are the bank's collateral on the warehouse line. So, so just just a, little, a bit of an aside, help me with sort of the the, the travel, the the travel, if you will, or the the path of that collateral. So, right. We're at the closing table, and the consumer—let's just call it the, the borrower—signs the primary, the promissory note, and a whole bunch of other documents. And then, what happens to that note typically for your for your clients that have a warehouse line of credit from you, from the settlement agent? You know, if it's a title company uh, or an attorney state, depending on the state. But regardless, this so, so now um, the settlement agents—they've made a copy of the promissory note. They've gotten a copy of the actual your collateral. So everybody needs a copy. They've got the original with the borrower's ink, mm-hmm. maybe maybe e-signed in some some cases, but mostly yeah. ink. Um, and is, is that blue or black ink? Typically blue. <laughs> <laughs> that was a, pop, just a little pop quiz there. So blue blue ink signed um, uh, note, you know, promissory note. So what happens next? So what what does that settlement agent uh-huh. do with that blue blue ink signed note? Right. So, so, so really uh, what, what will happen is they will, there will be uh, delivery instructions for the collateral uh, that are in the closing package that the settlement agents should see. And what that will tell them is where to ship it to and where to ship it to would be to uh, Fidelity Bank in Houston, Texas. And so we uh, receive the note. And as soon as we receive it, um, you know, we, we, you know, since we were the ones who, who funded it, we know uh, where it's going. So, you know, if, if, if it gets shipped to us from, um, let's say, you know, a, a, a borrower, uh, or settlement agent in Georgia, it gets shipped to us from say Atlanta to Houston. And, you know, right away, we're going to ship it right back where it came from. Uh, you know, uh, the settlement agent may be in Atlanta, but, you know, I think I'm, I'm not sure if, is it Atlanta where Lone Depot get receives 
collateral? I'm not sure. That's a, that's a good question. I, I really don't know. Yeah, maybe, uh, something, yeah, maybe something we, we might know, want to know, but uh, uh, <laughs> right. our staff. But, um, you know, we, we will ship it to, to where Loan Depot is, is processing, uh, uh, you know, the, the notes. Uh, and uh, it will be shipped under what's called uh, bailment, you know, bailment or uh, under a bailey letter. And the bailey letter will basically say, um, you know, hey, Loan Depot, um, you know, we are shipping this note to you with the intent of you purchasing it. Please treat it as if you own it. And if you decide not to own it, then please ship it right back to us. But if you do decide to own it, there are some wire instructions underneath it. Please follow the wire instructions uh, to remit proceeds to Fidelity Bank to for final settlement. And once you know, Loan Depot settles the loan, which is sent, you know, they, they purchase the loan, we settle it. Uh, loan Depot purchases it, sends us the proceeds for purchase. Uh, we then um, settle the loan, meaning uh, you know, we pay off what was borrowed to originate. Uh, and then any excess proceeds, and there should hopefully be excess proceeds uh, after a loan uh, settles, uh, goes into the uh, it goes into the account of that particular client, uh, and that's how they're getting paid for the sale of the of the of the, the mortgage, and that's the end of that deal. So um, you know, in that that time between shipping, I guess closing and purchase, uh, right now what we're seeing is around ten or eleven days. Uh, from from closing to to eventual purchase and settlement. Yep, that's similar on our end. We like I think the average is right 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 somewhere in there between somewhere between nine and eleven days. Yeah, has kind of has kind of been the average. So for for most people, uh, for most loans that are transact transacted, uh, you know, efficiently. So so that's a lot to think about. Um, and uh, so I'd like to maybe just dig into some of the things if 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 if, if we're if part of our audience is, a, is a, perhaps a mortgage broker who's thought about or thinking about becoming a lender, becoming a mortgage banker, you know, what are the sort of things that they would need to sort of think about in their mind and paperwork and other, other things they have to do to, uh, to get ready to become a lender? So the first thing that comes to, to my mind is the licensing. So I believe most states, if not every state, has different licensing requirements for a lender versus a broker. Like I know, for instance, New York, um, it's very difficult to become a lender in New York. So we, 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 right. it's, and I mean, I, I even worked for a large top 10 independent mortgage banker in a past life and we could not get licensed in New York. It was the craziest thing. It was almost <laughs> to the point where we were, we were going to buy a mortgage company in New York just for the, just for the license, you know, cause it was just right, so, yeah. so difficult. And then some States it's, it's very easy and everything in, 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 in between. So what, uh, what sort of hurdles have you seen um, from mortgage brokers, you know, in terms of the licensing licensing requirements? Like, like, how does it work in, in Texas, for instance? Yeah, Texas is well. I think um, this has since been dropped, but there was a time when you had to have a brick and mortar uh, in Texas to to get a license. I think uh, I want to say that that went away last year. Uh, I might check on that, but uh, but, but now, but, but now that's a that's a that's a that's a that's a good term you meant you use there. So so brick and mortar. So that means you have to have a, an actual physical office in the state in order to correct. become a lender. Is that, yes. is, that, is that what you mean by that? that that's correct. Yeah, you, de- you have to have a, a physical office. Now, I had seen some, some clients. I mean, we, we, we will have clients, say, for instance, in uh, Orange County, California, seems to be a popular. <laughs> that's sort of the epicenter for, uh, for you know, that there's a big, huge 
bulk of, of, of lenders in that area and brokers in that area. Uh, and, and we will see uh, these brokers will, our lenders uh, will get uh, a license in Texas, but they, they will typically have uh, the brick and mortar that they will use is the loan officer's actual home, uh, which makes sense because, uh, you know, in a lot of cases, uh, a lot of loan officers work from their homes. Uh, so so that I think that's what a lot of folks did uh, to get licensed. But, um, you know, I think I think for every state, there's some little wrinkle. I think, for instance, uh, I don't know if this is still true or not. I think it is. But Florida requires audited financial statements. Um, that's not every single, um, you know, that's not every single uh, state that, that that requires that. But but there, you know, you definitely have to find out uh, from your state licensing board what your state requires and who you have to deal with. Um, you know, that that's, you know, that that's the the, the tough part about, uh, uh, you know, about, about getting started, but you usually it should be the, the, the same people that you've got licensed with become a broker. So you'll have to go back and talk to, uh, to convert that to a banker's license. And, and you really will probably have both of those licenses working in tandem because when you're a, a, a mini correspondent, emerging banker, non-delegated correspondent, and, and you do FHA, well, you're not going to have the net worth yet. And this is probably beyond the scope of what we're going to talk about, but just to mention that you know, you you will probably have a uh, a hybrid uh, uh, where you're 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 brokering your FHA, but you are banking, uh, say the conventionals, uh, um, the uh, uh, FA or uh, VAs, uh, jumbos. Maybe you do uh, you do USDA. You know those those can be banked, but uh, FHA is a little different. Where you're you're going to have uh, you're going to be brokering those until your net worth qualifies for at least a mini eagle. Um, you know, and then that also requires audited financials, but uh, that that's again, you know, a little beyond what we're going to talk about today. No, that's a good, that's a great point because I, I know Florida, you're right about Florida. Florida is audited financials to be, to be a lender. Whereas like in Georgia, just one state up, it is just essentially just, it's the same process, just a bigger, you know, bond. Yeah, in, in in Georgia, and I think it's pretty typical. They they require a little bit more of a bond. I don't know that any states have a higher net worth requirement. Um, maybe some do, uh, but again, it's it's state by state. And uh, but I have noticed a lot of folks that are lenders in so let's say Georgia and Texas, um, they are brokers in Florida because of the audited financial requirement, and that which is which is very daunting and exp- you know, extensive and expensive. And and then for the FHA, it's a great point because. Not only do you have to have audited financials, it's got to be a HUD-approved auditor, which is a special audit, right? Um, a very special audit and a very expensive audit that may not necessarily be a GAAP-compliant audit. So it, would, it, would, it counts as audited financials, but not in the traditional sense. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, I'll quote it, air quotes, special audit just for HUD. Um, so we love that. And uh, those auditors charge a special fee. Yeah, for those special audits as well, right. and then um, so all all that on top of keeping a bunch of money in your company as well to get the mm-hmm. to get the eagle. So um, yeah. a lot to think a lot to think about there, and that's very common for us in our in our correspondent channel, which we offer mini or emerging banker mini core and non delegated core. It's very for both. It's very common uh, for the folks to broker their FHA FHA loans, and then they're the lender on the rest of their loans. So that's the correct. Story. Correct. So yeah, don't think there's too much here, but just, just maybe just touch quickly on compliance. You know, I don't know that there's any additional QC or auditing requirements, um, you know, for compliance, obviously there's as the lender, uh, there may be some more risks uh, to think about because 
you know, they're the one, the, 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 any, any uh, let's say, you know, RESPA or, you know, um, TILA or any other, you know, uh, you know, sort of uh, regulatory compliance yeah. stuff does, does fall back. It can fall back harder on the lender because you're not relying, you're, you're, you're the, you're the lender and your investor may, may or may, may or may not necessarily test all of your loans for every bit of, of the compliance. So there's, I think there's a little bit more compliance wise to think about it. I know a lot of folks outsource a lot of that compliance. Risk. That's right. That's I'm glad you mentioned that. That's exactly what I was going to say. I think, you know, when you're, when you're making the transition from broker to banker, I think the, the, the quickest and easiest answer to that would be to uh, contract with a doc prep fulfillment uh, firm, a law firm that provides that service um, who has, you know, in-house compliance attorneys uh, who can help you. Um, you know, that kind of goes also back to licensing. You know, the the states, I know Texas does uh, ask questions about, you know, different compliance programs, how, how you're, um, you know, tracking, uh, uh, you know, compliance with, with at least state uh, licensing requirements. And uh, I, I know you could go to your your uh, law firms that handle your doc prep and fulfillment. Uh, and and all of them really could could handle those questions. Um, but if you're in a state where, um, you know, let's say you're you've done it for a while, you know, you, you, you've been in, you know, non-Dell or Minicore for a while and you, you want to move on to not having uh, to use a doc prep fulfillment service. Well, then maybe, maybe you, you know, you, you contract with, with one of the other firms or there's uh, several really, really good firms that, that do that specific service for, um, you know, uh, non-Dell or, or, you know, c- companies that don't have in-house counsel to handle this for them. And, and there's a lot of them. And I mean, there's probably, um, no, not as many who have in-house counsel to handle this stuff for them, but uh, you know, there, there's that. That's why there is such such a a big uh, industry, uh, uh, you know, legal industry around real estate because there's there is a need. Uh, so yeah, there, there's a lot of resources out there for that. For sure, for sure. So let's jump into you know what 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 is what are the basic requirements to become a lender? So we've talked about audited financials, but is there like a hard, and again, you can, you can talk, you can talk industry generally, or you can talk the requirements there at Fidelity Bank. Yeah. But is there like a hard line, like let's say net worth requirement? Is there is there a rule of thumb, or is there? Do you guys have hard rules for the net worth? Of yeah, a, of a yeah. The, the net worth, you know, really our our, our warehouse line sizes start at two million. So, um, you know, we're we're really looking for someone who you know, is, is, has between 200 and 250,000 in cash. Really, that's, that's the net worth of, of most of these broker uh, firms. I mean, you, you, you know, it's not like having uh, a true man. You know, I mentioned, you know, mortgage companies, uh, like, you know, we liken mortgage companies to manufacturing firms. Well, it's not truly like a manufacturing firm because you're not sitting on much machinery or, or, or lots of raw inventory or things like that. You know, you, you know, your balance sheet basically is, is cash. Uh, you know, uh, and if you're already uh, a, a mini correspondent, you know, non-Dell correspondent, uh, you know, you have a, uh, uh, you know, you, you probably have some, a little bit of equipment, uh, you know, you have a warehouse line, that's your, your big liability, your big asset piece is going to be, uh, is going to be the loans themselves. But uh, if you're just starting out and you don't have any of that yet, then you really just have cash. So we're looking for around 200 to 250,000 in cash to start. And then we like to try to target a, uh, you know, debt to equity, equity ratio of 10 to 15 times uh, debt to equity. Um, you know, and I know that, that 
and in some instances, maybe more instances than not, uh, you know, 10 to 15 times, maybe a little restrictive, we could go up to 20 times in certain instances, so long as we have a, a commitment to, to try to build capital uh, to get yourself down to a level, level of debt to equity. So you basically take you know, your equity, which is your cash, uh, really, and, and you multiply that by between 10 and 15 times, and that will come up with the size of a commitment that we would write to. So with a $2 million warehouse line, without putting too much stress um, on the situation in a given month, how many, how many dollars of mortgages does it, would a typical merging banker be able to fund on a $2 million warehouse line? What, what, what do you guys see um, with your clients currently? Yeah, I mean, I think that you could uh, count on being able to do, uh, you know, four or five million a month because you're going to turn it, you know, two to two and a half times a month. Um, and then the reason I'm, I, you know, I'm not saying, you know, if you're turning it three times a month, three times two is is six. And I'm not, you know, I, I'm, you know, sometimes you're going to have a little, a little bit of lag. You want to allow for a little bit of cushion. Uh, you might have a loan that hangs around longer than you want to for a, a whole host of reasons. Uh, you never know what, what's going to cause that, but um, you know you want to have a little cushion. So I usually say, you know, if you have a two million dollar line, you could usually fund between four and five million a month. So somebody who's originating roughly fifty million dollars a year in mortgages, you know, give or take, would be with a two million dollar line. That would keep that would that would keep them, you know, and depending on the the loan sizes and the yep. timing and all, all that stuff too. That would that would be about what we're talking about. That's right. Yep. That's okay. right. Yeah. Now, as far as experience, you know, I mean, is, is the same 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 question. Is there a hard and fast like you've got to have X number of months or years experience as in, in the in the industry, or really good references, or hey, hey, we know who you are, or or what? what how does how does how do you guys look at the at the, the owner? Or the owner's experience. Yeah, I mean, I, definitely the the longer experience you have in the industry, the better. I mean, I, you know, I, the typical profile that we're we're seeing when we see someone who's doing this is they've you know they they've usually somehow or other found their way to mortgage like all of us, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know they've you know it was probably you know probably early in their career uh, they started working for somebody uh, you know whether that be. Um, hey, I started working for, uh, you know, Loan Depot or I started working for my neighbor who, you know, hired me as a, uh, you know, a, a, a kid making coffee for him. And then I became a loan officer, you know, so they probably worked for a company like that for a while. And then they, you know, maybe they moved up and, and eventually, uh, you know, we're seeing lots of people who, who, who were, um, you know, like branch managers, you know, for, for a large mortgage company who worked in the net branch system. And they're, they're looking at it and seeing, you know, hey, I'm. I have done this for so long and made a lot of money for the owners of this company, but I think I could, I could probably make more money if I do this on my own. That, that's what I'm thinking. I want to do that. And that's when you know, we'll get a phone call from somebody saying, Hey, I got your name from, from Mark Hammond over at Loan Depot. And he said to give you a call, you're, 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 you guys could handle broker to bankers. So, um, you know, we're, you know, when they get to that stage, typically with what we see is someone who, and what we look for is someone who's at least has six to 12 months of experience as a broker uh, owning their own company. Um, and, and then, you know, we will look at, we'll definitely, you know, uh, uh, ask for references, but we will also ask for uh, their scorecard, you know, broker scorecards, uh, or if they, if they do have a line of credit, uh, and they're already doing, uh, you know, they're already lending. We'll we'll ask for their investor scorecard, and typically, what that will show us is, you know, just the the type of product they're doing, 
um, you know, uh, what, what, you know, what the, what the borrower FICOs have been, what the file deficiencies have been, uh, performance metrics for the underlying, you know, for the, you know, the collateral that, that they're delivering in to, um, you know, to, to the investor or the broker. So, you know, that'll give us an idea of, of, you know, what kinds of loans are originating, you know, whether or not they're stretching on credit to, to get deals done or not. Um, you know, and, and, um, and, and honestly, we don't really see a lot of, of people who really are stretching. I think a lot of people have a lot, have a lot of respect for, uh, for credit and, and the risk they're taking, um, especially after what happened in 2008. I think a, a lot of people, a lot of the younger people, I think, you know, you, you would think people who haven't been through it, um, you know, may not understand the risk they're taking. They might want to stretch, but I think that the the older folks like us, Mark, are uh, <laughs> you know, are, are, are that that scar is still there, and I think a lot of us still remember it very keenly and talk about it. So um, you don't really see a lot of people, you know, stretching, and so so that you know, we we will look at that, and we will look at their experience. How long have they been doing it? I mean, the longer, obviously, the longer the better. But you know, being you know, doing it as a company, uh, six to twelve months, like I said, typically is what we want to see. Yeah, you're absolutely right about the, the those of us that have been around for a while and and the scars. I can I can it's almost like I can recall sharing a cab one time at a at a trade show with a two or three other mortgage bankers. We were all headed to the same hotel, and uh, I forget the exact year, but we're all um, we're all sitting there and and you start hearing the sob stories about '08 and all and all that, and you, and you think your story's bad. And uh, I never got a chance to share my story because I, 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 I felt pretty bad about mine and theirs were way worse than mine was. So yeah, everybody's, everybody's got the sob story, the scars, the whatever you want to call it from from that time. That was a definitely a crazy time. And hopefully we've all learned uh, something from all, all that pain for sure. Yep, for sure. So one thing. So it sounds like you, it feels like you want to see a progression. You know, someone has been a successful mortgage banker perhaps a successful loan officer working for somebody else. And then they've decided to open up their own company, as you said, which is, I think is a great point. They've shown they can run a company as a mortgage broker for a period of time. Cause there's, that's, that's a different level. If you're a W2 employee of somebody else as a loan officer or a branch manager, or maybe something else. And now you've taken the step to become a business owner and you've managed a successful business as a, let's say a mortgage brokerage. Now you want to go to the next level, which would be to get a warehouse line with a company like yours with like Fidelity. So yeah, I think you would, this, I think it's important to see sort of that, that progression and wanting to take it you know, to the next step and, and gain, you know, take, a long, take on a little more risk, but also with that risk comes some, some benefits as well to get, get a little bit more control of the, of the transaction, which we'll talk about here in a second. But one thing I've, I know that you stress that's important is the use of, and I'll use this industry term sort of loosely, but a a fulfillment company. Could you just take a few seconds and just talk about the what a fulfillment company is and what that what that what they do and what that role is? Sure, sure. So, so really, what what they're doing and 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 I don't and I'll I will just say I'm not an expert on everything that happens internally, but what we see them doing uh, and how they help the warehouse bank is that they're they're going to um, most of them are going to take your your LE. Uh, and, and as many docs as you've produced at a certain point, and they're going to produce the CD for you. Um, they're going to make sure, of course, that it's TRID compliant uh, and, and that the, the note that they produce for you is going to be uh, a compliant and, 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 uh, and all that, all the good stuff you want them to be doing. Um, but they're going to, they're going to prepare that package 
uh, to such a degree that um, you know once it gets to the closing table, that they're going to have handled uh, most of what what needs to be done to get to the closing table along with the processor in that company, uh, whether that be a processor who is working for the company as an employee or as an outsourced processor. Uh, but they're they're working uh, with the processor in the company uh, to get that loan to the closing table. Uh, and that's the doc prep part uh, that, that they really focused on. And then and then once you get on the other side of the loan closes, the loan needs to sell. Um, they're the ones who are going to be, uh, you know, helping the processor or whomever uh, is is within the the the, the lender's company themselves uh, to bird dog the back end information that needs to be uh, done. The fulfillment the part is fulfilling uh, those requests from the investor that the investor is looking for uh, to purchase the loan on the back end. Yeah, and I think that's that's important, especially early on. And I've in my career, I've I've helped folks move from from broker to banker as well. And that's what I always say. I'm like, even if you know, eventually you're going to either hire or do do those tasks in house. At least for the first half year, six months, whatever. Let's hire you know hire a fulfillment company and just watch how they do it and, and find out what you like about how what they do it and what you may not like how they do it. And that way you can you'll definitely learn on their you know and and pay and pay a cost for or pay a fee for their expertise versus. Correct. Versus learning the hard way, going from first world to third world, back to first world, like we talked about earlier. So yeah. much, much cheaper to learn by just writing the check to the fulfillment company and just see how things are done the correct way. And then you can decide later what parts of their process you'll implement, what parts you might maybe you can do better or or alter or or, or whatever. And then I always say, you know, I always say do one. You know, that I mean mm-hmm. let's, let's do let's do one all the way through like the people that I've seen, you know, they get in trouble. Is they 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 sign the docs for their warehouse line, and then they move their whole pipeline over there. And a lot of times, most times it works out fine, but I've seen a few where it hasn't, and that's typically the case. Is they is they just they move too fast. So I always say, hey, let's let's do one. You know, get your warehouse on, get all your get your warehouse line in place, all the docs signed, and try one loan all the way through. You know, from take the application disclosures, you know, investor approval, you know, CD closing package. And it's bought offline, and then regroup, and then right. find out, hey, hey, you know, hey, what what went well, what didn't go so well, and then adjust as needed, and then and try another one, and then maybe, maybe then maybe you get you can move a few loans over there from from broker to lender, and, and but don't do it all right away. Let's, let's 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 get one all the way across the finish line, bought off the line, and then sort of have like a, a recap call or meeting or whatever, and find out you know what you liked, what you didn't like. So, um, I, I think you bring up a good point too about the the cost of it. Uh, you know, the, the cost of, of making a, a mistake on a loan that can't be purchased, um, you know, will, will make the fee that you're paying to the doc prep fulfillment company uh, seem, you know, uh, almost a no brainer. Hey, let's just pay the money. So that way we're not ending up having a loan we can't sell and then maybe having to take it to scratch and den or have it hanging around the warehouse line too long and costing too much. I mean, um, you know, that, that's something I really try to stress to folks who are wanting to make this transition that, um, you know, the, the cost of the, you know, the cost of the, uh, you know, it may sound like you're, you're paying a lot of money. I think you're probably paying like $500 alone uh, for it to go through the, 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 uh, you know, from end to end in a, a doc prep and fulfillment uh, company, but um, it could be, the cost could be a lot higher when you start talking about uh, bids and scratch and debt. Sure. Sure. Well, let's, uh, so we've talked about a lot of the risks involved in becoming a, a lender. Um, let's talk about a couple of the benefits. Now, I'll, I'll just sort of take one 
sort of off the table, you know, pricing, you know, the pricing you get from your investors could, could be better. I, I, I always say, you know, if you can negotiate a better price with your investors being as a correspondent versus a, a broker, then more power to you. But that, that wouldn't be the main reason that I would do it. Um, you may get a better price. You may not. That's out of your control. That's right. Um, but a couple of things, a couple of things that are in your control and ought to be the most important reasons uh, for becoming a mortgage lender, mortgage banker versus a mortgage broker is first, you know, control of the appraisal. So as a broker, the way the law reads currently and has for a while, a mortgage broker cannot be really involved at all in the appraisal ordering. Their investor or their lend their lender. Um, as a broker, has to be the one that fulfills and orders and, and, and places and takes care of the appraisal ordering. But I believe, as a as a mortgage lender, mortgage banker, you have a little bit more control over the appraisal ordering process. That's right. That's exactly right. And 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 that is a that is a big advantage uh, is being able to control uh, and and um, you know uh, order that appraisal yourself. Have control of of who you're dealing with. Um, you know, it, it, you can move around to and work with different appraisal management companies. Um, but of course, the nice thing about the appraisal management company is um, they will also keep you compliant because you really don't have a lot of contact with the appraiser um, for obvious reasons. You know, you you never want it to make it look like there's any kind of um, influence you've had over over how that 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 home is getting valued in, in terms of of what is being lent. So, um, but yeah, that that you're right. That is a big advantage to, to moving from broker to banker. Yeah, so it's getting getting control of that appraisal order. So we. As as part of our correspondent approval process, we we want to see that the that the correspondent or the lender, mortgage banker, all those terms I'm using synonymously, we want to see that they have their own written appraiser independence policy. So that's part of the requirements to become an approved loan depot correspondent, is you've got to have an appraiser independence policy, regardless of how you order the appraisal, whether you use an AMC or whether you do it following your own policy. But if you want to order it yourself and follow your policy. Um, that's that's fine. We'll we'll let you do that. Or if you want to use an AMC, that's fine too. We still want you to have a, a, a policy in place because we think it's important that, that you understand, you know what what you're getting into because you're, you're you're the lender. It's not us anymore. And uh, whether it's the AMC or you, it doesn't matter. It's it's got to be compliant. Um, and then we've also found that it's interesting. You know we're we're a large you know you know top five ish national lender. And we're signed up with a lot of AMCs. We do a lot of business with a lot of AMCs, appraisal management companies all across the country. But we found that our clients a lot of times get much better service uh, from some of the smaller AMCs because it's local. It's more of a relationship, exactly. Yep. And they can, they can, they can, and they can. They don't need a necessarily need a national appraisal management company for all of their loans. They may need it for some loans if somebody's buying a second home in a different state or from where they live or, or where at whatever. Um, but for most of the transactions, they can they can partner with a local appraisal management company. They might be smaller, uh, maybe have some more staff appraisers, and they can get those orders placed. You know, in some some cases, better and faster than we can as as a national company because we're trying to cover a much broader territory and and need it's a, it's a different need. So, so control of the appraisal order is huge, um, especially now because because the, the appraiser. Uh, industry um, appraisal industry has definitely had some uh, some shortages um, yes. and supply and demand problems the last you know 12 15 maybe even going eight, going on 18 months so that's that's huge and then the other piece of it that may be the biggest piece the biggest reason to consider going from broker to banker is control of the closing disclosure you know when that goes out 
and control of the closing package. And so as a broker, you know, you have some control of the CD but ultimately, and the closing package, but ultimately you're beholden to the closing department at your lender, the, the wholesale lender, you know, in, in case of, the, of, a, of a broker. But once you become a correspondent, once you become a lender, mortgage banker, um, you're in control um, of, the, of the CD. A lot of times your investor can provide that service for you if you want. Um, but most of our non-delegated correspondents or NDCs, um, they prepare the CD and they uh, prepare the closing package because ultimately that puts them in control of more in control of the closing. They're they're not going to like they're they're not going to be very likely to close the loan before it's been approved by an underwriter. Um, but if they, if the last thing they're waiting on is let's you know is the underwriter to sign off on the loan, they can have the CD prepared and out and signed and balanced with all parties. And they can even have the closing package out just waiting on that underwriter approval. And it takes a lot of pressure off um, and it puts them in control of of those documents where they're not waiting on another company um, to do those things. So I think, yeah, yeah, I I think, I think, I think control of the CD and the closing package may be the the biggest reason to consider, um, you know, know, becoming a banker because the the more you control uh, to me, you know, the more you can affect the outcome. That's absolutely right. Yep. And um, yeah, and I think if you're if you're working with a good law firm who can who can help you, uh, especially in the outset, um, you know, that you can really see, like you said, see what they're doing, watch how they're helping you control that, um, watching the timing of what they're doing. And 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 if you want to bringing that in-house and mirroring that yourself to maintain even more control so that that portion of it is is not not outsourced, but uh, but rather, uh, you know, in-house and, and something you're doing. Uh, and like you said, then you really have the control uh, versus out, even outsourcing that part. Sure, sure. Well, uh, well hey, um, what else? Uh, anything, anything that we missed? Uh, anything that, we, that, we, that you wanted to cover in terms of, uh, of the, the pros, cons process of becoming, of going from a mortgage broker to a, to a mortgage banker, all the, all the things that, that emerging bankers or pre-emerging bankers uh, might want to consider. Yeah, uh, just I wanted to mention, uh, you know, the Felty Bond and, and ENO coverage. That's right. Uh, that's right. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, and that that um, uh, although we are not, uh, you know, we're obviously not insurance underwriters or an insurance company. Um, we do we do request that. And one thing uh, that, that that I think um, anyone listening and considering a move from broker to banker is going to want to do is before you, you know, uh, of course, one you know one of the the check boxes that that you, you you're going to want to check is to check in with your agent and just make sure that the coverage that you have. Uh, would cover you as a banker if you make that move, because I think a lot of people will get into being a broker and they'll have broker coverage for Fidelity Bond and ENO, um, and oftentimes is required by investors. But um, once you make the move to banker, um, it's actually a different policy. Uh, the wording uh, that's in the policy might cover both, but but you really want to check into that because we we did have a situation with with a client who had been around for quite a while. Um, had started as a broker, became a banker, and then he had a problem. He had a, uh, I think it was a home that had burned down, and and he had to go to his ENO uh, coverage, and his agent had to tell him, "Hey, you know, you've, I know you've had this, but we haven't reviewed your policy in so long, and it's still broker policy, not a banker policy, and you mm. make this this loan." So um, he had to eat that one. So um, wow, yeah, that that's one of those things that you you just want to make sure. 
uh, on things like that, that, you know, uh, fidelity bond and, you know, is sort of like, you know, having car insurance or you know, you're not going to use it all the time. Uh, hopefully you're not. Uh, if you are, you're doing something <laughs> wrong, but, uh, you know, hopefully you're not going to use it very often, but, but if you do have to use it, just make sure, um, you're covered adequately, uh, and that your insurance agent, uh, that's helping you understands, you know, the business that you're, you're in. So if you're banking, make sure it's a banking policy. So d- does the size of your fidelity and E&O policy, is it, is it relative to the Again, apologize for my ignorance here. Do you think it's relative to the average loan size of what you're transacting in, or maybe the size of your warehouse line, or the size of your originations? I mean, like if you're, is it? I mean, like what? What's a typical claim if there is a typical claim for one of those policies? Does it? I mean, obviously, it probably has something to do with the loan size because it's it's got some or the size of the transaction because there's there's some financial loss, but. You know, is 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 a is a house fire a typical type claim? What what are the kind of claims that you've, yeah. you've seen? Yeah, well, luckily we haven't seen any. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I I, 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 I was I was I was scratching yeah. my brain too. Yeah, yeah. About, I, I, can't I did. Recall, I, yeah, I did. I can't, I, yeah, I can't yeah. recall anybody ever ever actually. I mean, the policies are required in most states they to are, become yeah. a lender, but I, I don't ever recall anybody ever other than paying the premium. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah. ever, ever using the policy. So that's, that's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, they, they, they usually, uh, cover you per incident and Fannie Freddie requires a uh, 300,000 per incident coverage, but, um, 300,000, you know, if you just think about, um, a, a situation where, you know, I mean, I, I don't, you know, I don't want to pick any, on anybody, but so I'll just pick on Houston because this is where I'm at. Um, you know, we, we've had our fair share of natural disasters and you know, that includes floods. And um, sure. let's just say, you know, you, you have a, a house that's sitting on your, uh, your, your warehouse line and uh, the warehouse, you know, uh, has advanced the funds to the closing table. And three days later, Hurricane Harvey shows up and the house that you finance for your borrower um, is in water over the front door. Uh, you know, we're talking 12, 13, 14 feet of water. Uh, in a house, and um, and and then let's say um, you know, and, and this is something that we actually look at, uh, which is why I think we we do such a good service for for uh, you know broker uh, to banker transitions. We we will actually collect and look at the uh, the the insurance uh, the homeowner's insurance policy and make sure that the that the insurance is effective and it's referencing the right uh, property address. But let's say. Uh, you know, the, the, the insurance deck page is what I'm referring to. Let's say the insurance deck page um, said um, that, that, you know, the policy uh, was, it had a policy effective date, you know, four days after uh, the loan actually closed. And let's say that happened because um, the borrower told their insurance agent, this is our closing date. The insurance agent said, great, I'm going to get you your, your deck page out right now. That was what was in the system. That was the effective start date for the policy. But it happened three days, not four days. You know, this, this flood happened <laughs> three days after the close. Now you have a situation where you have a home that's underwater. Um, and then let's say um, the, the home wasn't in a floodplain. So it didn't have flood insurance. It wasn't required. Uh, and the, you know, or I'm sorry, the, uh, um, the, 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 the homeowner's insurance doesn't really cover that flood. It's not, you know, we're, we're, we're covering, we're talking about fires, uh, you know, we're not talking about, uh, in, in, and in some instances, theft, we're not talking about a flood. Um, then you have a situation where, Hey, you've got a, a, a house that, that, 
is going to need remediation and all kinds of other work on it. And right. you own the loan on that collateral, as we mentioned earlier. Uh, well, you might have to hit your E&O policy for something like that because that loan may be unsellable now. Uh, no, yep. no investor may want it because the underlying collateral just became worthless from that flood and it's not covered by insurance. So, um, so yeah, that may be an instance where you might have to hit your E&O policy. Or um, we had a, a situation uh, happen to us, which thankfully, because we look at the insurance tech page, we knew that the policy was, the homeowner's policy was good, but uh, there was a situation where a home, it was a, uh, a, it was a refinance. Uh, they, they were refinancing from uh, construction to perm on a brand new home. It was a jumbo loan and the uh, house got hit by lightning while the people were at the wow. table, their brand new wow. home moved into it. The house got hit by lightning. Uh, it burned the garage down and fried the electrical system in the house. It caused, I want to say it was like almost a hundred thousand worth of dollars worth of damage. Well, if that house was not covered by homeowners insurance, those people uh, or that particular lender uh, probably would have been hitting their DNO um, at some point uh, to get the, the collateral uh, repaired. So um, that's really what it's for uh, underinsured. But really, I think uh, that that would be, you know, a lot of these things would be discussions for, uh, you know, w- between the, uh, the agents uh, and the lender, uh, their insurance agent. Uh, but yeah, there, there's a lot of things to consider. I mean, you know, those, those outside, you know, um, outside events, you know, the tail risk uh, really is what we're talking about. Uh, you know, sure. not, not things sure. that are happening in the normal distribution, things are on the end, well, other end of the normal distribution, several standard deviations away from the mean. Man, think about that. So you're, you're at the closing table, signing all those documents. And while you're at the closing table, your how your new house gets hit by lightning. Yeah. And so then you go and you fix your, electrical system or all the stuff you got to get fixed and think about it. Like the, the next thing that goes wrong in that house, I mean, that, that's going to be a high bar, you know, yeah. for you to ever say that, Hey, this, this, this is the perfect house. This house was meant for us, honey. And, uh, <laughs> you know, the, 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 the minute that a closet door doesn't close properly, you're probably selling the thing and moving. I mean, it's like, <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, if you, if you've, if you even moved in at all, you right. might even, you might even not, you might even not move in. I mean, what, I mean, what a, what a sign. Did it, you know, <laughs> yeah. This is not the house for you. you know? <laughs> Holy cow. Holy cow. Well, Hey, uh, Brian, I know we, we, we ran a little bit long enough, but lots of great stuff, lots of great information in here. Um, you know, obviously you've, you've done this before. Um, you've, you've kind of mapped out a, a roadmap, you know, for folks to, to use, to, to, to at least consider all the, all the risks, all the pros and cons, of uh, becoming a, a banker, but tell us a little bit more about you. So how, if folks want to learn more about you and Fidelity Bank, how can they get in touch with you? How can they find out, you know, if this uh, mortgage banker is the next best right step for them? Yeah, no, they they can uh, find us on our, our website, uh, www.fidelitybankmn.com. Uh, I, I and my counterpart, Susan Johnson, both have our own pages on, on the bank's website. You can learn more uh, about both the uh, emerging banker and the uh, correspondent mortgage bankers uh, that way. Um, uh, and then uh, my contact information is on there so they can they can give me a call uh, at my office here in Houston and uh, happy to walk through and, and revisit any of these topics. And, you know, I'll, I'll just close out by saying, you know, hey, when you're working with a warehouse provider, uh, you know, you want to find one that's uh, with experience and a long track record, uh, you know, where 
uh, you know, you're, you're going to get uh, attention as you, you move through the broker to banker transition and someone who can grow with you as you grow through those cycles in life and be that trusted advisor that you need to uh, help you uh, as you move from broker to banker and as you move from, uh, you know, non-delegated to delegated and then eventually from uh, delegated doing, you know, bulk delivery, you know, having a centralized lock desk, uh, you know, uh, uh, hedging. Uh, you know, connecting you with resources for, uh, you know, trade lines, hedge advisory, that kind of thing. Uh, you know, we've done it uh, from, you know, uh, line sizes. Like I said, we start out 2 million, all the way up to 100 million. Have done it since 1986. Of course, I was in high school in 1986. So uh, <laughs> that's, a that's a long time ago. That's right. That's a long time ago. So, uh, so yeah, yeah. If you're going to work with a warehouse uh, lender, work work with someone uh, who has uh, got a lot of experience uh, and, and experience in all phases of the growth cycle for a mortgage company and they can be there for you. Well, that's awesome. Well, hey, Brian, I really appreciate your time. Thanks again uh, for being a part of Renovation Radio. Hey, Mark, thank you so much for having me on. Really appreciate it. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Brian. Take care, Mark. Thanks for listening to the Renovation Radio podcast. Please help the show by following us and rating us on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please help us spread the word by sharing our podcast on your social media. The views, information, and opinions expressed on Renovation Radio are solely those of the individuals involved. Renovation Radio, because we're all a work in progress.